traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Uh, Look, I'm afraid no responsible prime minister can ignore the message of those figures. And when I told you two weeks ago that we were pursuing a local and a regional approach to tackling this virus, I believed then and I still believe passionately that was the right thing to do. That is the sound of the prime minister making a screeching U-turn. Early evening, Saturday, October the 31st, and number 10 was staging a very unusual kind of show for Halloween, broadcast live to the nation just before Strictly Come Dancing, but with no real choreography and no sense of timing whatsoever. In most parts of the United Kingdom, trick-or-treating and other traditions had been discouraged this year because of Covid restrictions. But who needs sweets, pumpkins and apple bobbing when an audience of 13 million viewers can watch the real horror movie of a government having a nervous breakdown live on television? A Whitehall farce directed by Quentin Tarantino. From Thursday until the start of December, you must stay at home. You may only leave home for specific reasons, including for education, for work, let's say if you cannot work from home, exercise and recreation outdoors with your household. Remember, in the weeks before, ministers had positively scorned the idea of a second national lockdown. We, on the other hand, want to go on with our commonsensical approach, which is a local and a regional approach. We don't want to create a second national lockdown. I think people would feel it was not only uh, counterproductive or or ineffective, but desperately unfair for measures to be uh, imposed across the board. Labour want to see this two to three weeks circuit breaker to give us some breathing space to get on top of test and trace. People want to know, is that going to happen? No. And yet, here was the PM, flanked by Professor Chris Whitty, the government's chief medical officer, and Sir Patrick Vallance, its chief scientific advisor, proposing to do exactly what he and his colleagues had repeatedly said they wouldn't. That is, impose a national lockdown until Wednesday, December the 2nd. I'm Matt Dancona, and this is a story about much more than pandemic restrictions. It's a tale of 24 hours of political mayhem in the sweaty rooms of Number 10, of a government paralysed by political tensions and strategic disunity, of media mismanagement on a cosmic scale, and of what can only be described as a data disaster. 24 hours that ended up with the nation, or to be precise, England, being shut down for the second time in a year. 24 hours of bedlam that lit a fuse, a fuse that led to the explosive resignations last week of Lee Kane as Downing Street Director of Communications and of Dominic Cummings, the Prime Minister's closest advisor. 24 hours of infantile bickering and faction fighting that, as the total number of deaths from Covid headed towards the bleak milestone of 50,000, the nation could ill afford. 24 hours, in fact, that captured with almost poetic clarity the fault lines in this dysfunctional government. I've spoken to 20 ministers, advisers, scientists and others familiar with those fateful hours to establish what was really happening and why it went so wrong.
Tortoise is a different kind of newsroom. We publish podcasts and articles, but just as importantly, we're open to our members. Our members help us decide what stories to cover and how to think about them. I'd love you to join us, and listeners to this podcast can do that at half price. All you have to do is go to tortoisemedia.com and use the code MAT50 to get a year's membership for just £50. What's more, you get your first 30 days for free. So let's start at the beginning, or just before the story truly erupted. Late morning, Friday, October the 30th, and rumours were already beginning to swirl round Westminster that a tightening of restrictions might be on its way. The familiar fizz of media speculation started to be heard on social media and in WhatsApp chatter. At 11.42am, Sky's deputy political editor, Sam Coates, posted a Twitter thread based on a nugget in a Times column by The Spectator's well-informed political editor, James Forsyth, to the effect that another national lockdown might be just around the corner. Now, James, who was a colleague of mine when I edited that fine magazine, has always had great sources of his own. But since his wife, Allegra Stratton, was appointed head of communications to Chancellor Rishi Sunak and then promoted to be the first White House-style on-camera spokesperson for Number 10 a role she is due to start fully in the new year, well, you can imagine how every word James writes is scoured for deeper meaning. Sam Coates did just that, tweeting in frustration about the mixed messages on lockdown. Either someone is exaggerating the government's position, he wrote, or the top of government isn't being straight with everyone. True enough. The drip-drip continued. At 2pm, an unnamed source on the government's own Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies, or SAGE, briefed reporters that it is not too late to save Christmas if a month-long lockdown were introduced in England. An hour later, SAGE papers were released, showing that on October the 14th, that is a full 16 days before, the group had warned the government that up to 74,000 people might soon be infected every day in England alone, far beyond the previous worst-case scenario. And so at 3.30pm on Friday the 30th, a crisis meeting of the Covid Quad was convened in Downing Street, supposed to bring some order to what looked like becoming an unholy mess. The Covid Quad is the staff chamber of the UK's pandemic response strategy. The Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, Health Secretary Matt Hancock and Michael Gove, the powerful Cabinet Office Minister. Some of the accounts of this meeting have implied it was four men squaring up around a beige poker table under a naked light bulb. To quote Hamilton, you did indeed have to be in the room where it happened. But it wasn't just the top four ministers. A rolling cast of between 15 and 20 people were in the room as the debate continued for somewhere between an hour and two hours. As one cabinet source put it to me, Everyone seems to think it was this inner sanctum and only the four top guys knew what was going on. In fact, there were people coming in and out and the meetings sort of carried on in all sorts of shapes and sizes afterwards. It, it wasn't one single crunch moment. What is not in doubt is the lousy atmosphere. As one person familiar with every stage of the negotiations puts it, on the surface, it was all courteous enough, but there was a lot of personal history in the room, a lot of tensions that have deepened during the pandemic. You felt at any moment that it might turn into the crappiest pub fight in the history of the world. The divisions were familiar enough. On one side, Matt Hancock and Michael Gove argued that, as in March, when the first lockdown was imposed, 
the NHS might soon be overwhelmed by the increasing pressure of coronavirus admissions. There was melodramatic talk of hospitals having to employ security muscle to turn patients away, of ice rinks being converted into morgues, a moral and political nightmare. In the other corner was Rishi Sunak, who wanted to know if the inevitable economic cost of another national lockdown and the more immediate price to the Treasury and extended rescue measures were really justified. Rishi was relatively restrained, says one observer, but you could tell from his body language that he was super tense at the very end of his rope. To get a sense of his objections, let's jump forward a few days to his statement to the House of Commons on Thursday, November the 5th, fireworks night, appropriately enough. This speech was intended to signal as clearly as possible his opposition to the lockdown, without doing so explicitly. And it's worth taking time to listen to sections of it to get a sense of quite how furious the Chancellor was and remains. Rishi Sunak's first objection was that Matt Hancock and Dido Harding had messed up test and trace, and that he, the Chancellor, was now left to pick up the pieces. I have had to make rapid adjustments to our economic plans as the spread of the virus has accelerated. So I'd like to take this opportunity to explain how and why this has happened. During the summer, as we began slowly unlocking, it was our hope the country would continue to be economically open, albeit with local restrictions being put in place as and when needed. What Sunak is saying here is that he had put in place an economic rescue package, but one that depended upon Hancock doing his bit, and the test and trace strategy, combined with regional lockdowns, being implemented effectively. We knew there would likely be a resurgence in the spread of the virus, but with increased NHS capacity and test and trace, our belief was we would be able to stay ahead of the virus. On this basis, we designed an economic approach which continued providing wage support to people, incentivised businesses to retain staff beyond the end of the furlough scheme, and created new job creation and training schemes such as Kickstart. At the time, this approach was not government acting alone. Our proposals secured wide-ranging support from the TUC to the CBI. It was their hope, as it was ours, that the public health situation would allow us to keep businesses and workplaces open. In other words, the plan should have worked, but as Sunak makes quite clear, it hadn't. The virus, however, continued to spread. Localised restrictions were having an impact, and so we intensified this approach and added further areas. As these restrictions intensified, the economic impact, particularly on industries such as the hospitality sector, was significant. So, in response, we altered our approach to wage support, making it much more generous to employers and, in turn, protecting jobs. We also introduced a range of grants to businesses, whether open or closed, to help them meet their fixed costs. I'll leave it to the people of this country to decide whether they believe the government is trying its best to support people through an unprecedented crisis, to decide whether it is a good or bad thing to alter our economic plans as the health restrictions we face change. Ouch. In other words, you be the judge of whether this daft plan is worth it, folks. Second, the Chancellor wanted everyone to know that the new lockdown came with a heavy price tag. Here he is responding to Mel Stride, Conservative Chair of the Commons Treasury Select Committee. The OBR are one of our preeminent forecasters, uh, and what they are forecasting already is that the economy falls by about 10% this year, that unemployment reaches 
12%, an increase of 2.5 million people, and that in the medium term our economy will suffer scarring of about 3%, which represents tens of billions of pounds of less economic output, uh, and indeed he will of course also know the impact this is having on our public finances. Uh, that is the situation as it exists today, before we enter uh, the, the new set of restrictions. Obviously that will cause additional stress on all the numbers uh, that I outlined for him. Uh, he will also have seen the Bank of England's comments this morning that the duration of further restrictions will increase their impact of long-term scarring on the economy. And just to hammer home the point, here's Rishi Sunak telling Tory MP Peter Bone that, yes, indeed, he was being compelled to borrow too much. My honourable friend asked an excellent question. In the short term, we are paying for this through extensive borrowing, uh, and he will see that this year our debt to GDP will rise to roughly 100%. Uh, we are also carrying a significant ongoing borrowing requirement that is evident in the forecasts that have been seen. Now, that is not a sustainable situation. So let's return to Friday, October the 30th and that very tense quad meeting. As one senior source puts it, it was clear that Rishi wasn't going to fall into the trap of being the money guy who resigns because preventing deaths is too pricey. But everyone in the room could tell that the possibility of resignation was now a real one. How easy it is to forget that when he was appointed Chancellor in February in succession to Sajid Javid, Sunak was widely portrayed as a number 10 stooge. But in the intervening months, he'd accumulated his own political capital and was now a force to be reckoned with, and Boris Johnson knew it. To compound the PM's dilemma, the idea of a new lockdown offended his own libertarian instincts, his lifelong love of having his cake and eating it. More to the point, it also offended his desire not to look like a prat, having been so unambiguously opposed to such a measure in recent weeks, and handing his enemies, notably the Labour leader, such a political gift. As one Johnson ally told me, even as they were talking, Boris could just imagine Keir Starmer's motionless hair as he headed the ball into the back of the net. Still, Matt Hancock and Michael Gove kept up the pressure. Debt was bad, but deaths were worse. Local lockdowns were helping, but not enough, they contended. A second national shutdown was a temporary measure, and schools and universities would stay open this time. The focus of the meeting might have been upon the drug that has been reducing COVID fatalities, dexamethasone, but really it was all about testosterone and who had most. According to one of the government's scientific advisers, there's nothing more wearying than watching Conservatives pretending to like each other through gritted teeth every time Hancock or Sunak insists that they actually really get on, a fairy dies. This Poundland machismo set the tone for all that was to follow, but it also had immediate and very important effects. The centrepiece of the meeting was a presentation given by Chris Whitty and Patrick Vallance based on the modelling that they and their colleagues in the scientific community had been working on. The figures that gripped everyone's attention had been arrived at by forecasters at Public Health England and Cambridge University, who warned that the death toll might reach 4,000 a day by December, almost three times the previous peak of 1,445 fatalities on April the 8th. As one senior figure in the battle against the pandemic put it to me, this was the moment to really scrutinise what was being said and press witty and balance on what they were saying. I mean, 4,000 a day? That just doesn't make sense. We know that fewer people are dying because of better use of oxygen, clinical practice, dexamethasone. Why weren't the scientists pressed really hard on the data? Why, indeed, 
The answer seems to be threefold. First, Chris Whitty and Patrick Valance did not make the case clearly. They were visibly fearful of being blamed for whatever decision was taken. They had learned the hard way that the phrase guided by the science could be used by politicians to shift responsibility for bad decisions. Second, the senior political figures in the room were too busy sticking imaginary pins into voodoo dolls of each other to focus on forensic analysis. Third, as a consequence, they didn't perform the most basic task of ministerial scrutiny of the data in what all of them should have been treating as one of the most important meetings of their lives. Again, we need to leap forward in time out of our 24-hour time frame to see how terrible an omission this really was. On Sunday, November the 1st, the Sunday Telegraph revealed that the 4,000 figure was in fact based on out-of-date information and that the true forecast was closer to 1,000. A horrific daily worst-case scenario, to be sure, but not what ministers had been told. Here's Professor Carl Hennigan, the director of the Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine at Oxford University, explaining on the BBC's Today programme that the number was plain wrong. Because mathematically it is now proven to be incorrect, particularly the 4,000 estimate of deaths that would occur in December. And why that is, because it's already about four weeks out of date. And actually Cambridge, who are doing it, the MRC unit there, have already provided updates to provide lower estimates. And their estimates are much nearer to the truth. And they have a system called now casting and forecasting, where it's much nearer to the correct data. As an example, what the model four weeks ago was showing about a thousand deaths on November the 1st, and actually only 200 actually occurred. But by then, the stat, so to speak, was long out of the bag. Here's Chris Whitty squirming with embarrassment on Tuesday, November the 3rd, under cross-examination by Greg Clark, the lethally well-mannered chair of the Common Science and Technology Select Committee. There is a particular relevance to, to that statistic, though, is there not, uh, Professor Whitty, in that the NHS did cope with the peak last time, and one must assume that we've made further improvements during the summer. And so a whole set of other choices are possible if the NHS is not going to be overwhelmed. So the difference between 1,000 and 4,000 is actually quite material. Yes, and I, I, I have to say I feel slightly uncomfortable implying that this is a decision for me as a doctor advising government to decide on 1,000 or 4,000. This is you know, actually all I'm, all I'm saying in response to this question is I think there rather, there's been some rather overblown rhetoric on this. People can take different projections if they wish. But getting to the stage we got to in April, and if we do nothing, carrying on up from there, is entirely realistic. Let's go back again to the afternoon of Friday, October the 30th. The Quad meeting dispersed with Boris Johnson still troubled by what was being proposed. In the words of one cabinet adviser, the PM had got to 95% certainty on lockdown, in the sense that he accepted the logic of what he'd been told but wanted to mull it over. Maybe go to checkers and summon a few people for a final one-on-one discussion before pressing the button for a Monday announcement. This was naive. As was frequently pointed out to me, it takes hundreds of public servants even to prepare to operationalise a lockdown, let alone to impose one. By the time the Quad meeting was over, WhatsApp messages and emails, authorised or otherwise, were already fizzing across Whitehall and between ministers and officials and their opposite numbers in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. 
Wales, for instance, was already halfway through its own so-called circuit breaker national lockdown, which had begun on October the 30th, on the instructions of the Welsh First Minister, Mark Drayford. And we have now reached the difficult decision to introduce a two-week firebreak starting at 6pm on Friday this week. And was set to end on Monday, November the 9th. Northern Ireland, meanwhile, had opted for a similar arrangement even earlier, beginning its own circuit breaker lockdown on October the 16th, which will be lifted in phases between November the 20th and November the 27th. In Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon was determined not to shift from a localised system where each of the nation's 32 local authorities was assigned a different level or tier of restriction instead of imposing a one-size-fits-all lockdown. In other words, a disunited kingdom. The lesson of the first lockdown is that the simpler the measures are, the likelier they are to work. In that spirit, the government was always keen to present uniformity across the UK when it could. The furlough scheme, whereby the Treasury pays 80% of the wages of staff who might otherwise be made redundant, up to £2,500 per month, has now been extended to March. Ministers emphasise time and again that this is a UK-wide scheme. The furlough scheme is a UK-wide scheme. Symbolic of the solidarity. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Does what's going on in the American election scare and bemuse you in equal measure? Want to know what Biden and Trump are up to without tearing your hair out? Then you need to listen to American Friction, the brand new podcast about the countdown to the big vote in November from the makers of Oh God, What Now, The Bunker and Paper Cuts. Every Friday, we'll speak to leading experts and blockbuster commentators from the United States to explain the latest news and the big issues behind the vote. That's American Friction with me, Jacob Jarvis. Me, Chris Jones. And me, Nikki McCann Ramirez. Out every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Among the four nations at a time of great collective stress. But as number 10 officials fretted to one another on the afternoon of October the 30th, a national lockdown in England would be a recipe for horrendous complication and claims of unfair treatment especially at the borders as families try to cross over to see one another or businesses try to keep supply lines going at normal speed. Lockdown 1 had been characterised by comprehensible uniformity. Lockdown 2 had the makings of a confused mess. Meanwhile, inevitably, the scent of a story was reaching journalistic nostrils. In the late afternoon, Robert Peston, ITV's political editor, was driving to Dorset when he began to get a sense of what was going on. 
At Sky, Sam Coates was also on the case, tweeting snippets about the quad, as was the BBC's Laura Koonsberg, both picking up the direction of travel upon which the government was now apparently embarked. The decision at the BBC was, correctly, that it was not yet 100% clear whether Boris Johnson had made up his mind and that the nation's public service broadcaster could not pre-announce such a momentous decision before it had actually been taken. But the Times decided to lead its Saturday issue with the story that the Prime Minister was considering such a measure and at 9.46pm on Friday tweeted an advance image of the next day's front page with the forbidding headline, National Lockdown Looms. The Daily Mail did the same. Meanwhile, this was leading the news. Tonight at 10, COVID-19 infections in England are outstripping the government's worst-case scenario. Its advisers say numbers needing hospital care are already higher than anticipated. We'll be asking if a national lockdown is inching closer. If our story has a hinge, these two front pages were it. The decision by the two national newspapers to run with the story loosened the tongues of spin doctors and removed any inhibitions other media organisations might have felt about reporting the imminent announcement. On Saturday, October the 31st, the BBC led its 7am news bulletin with a report on the lockdown. The government is considering imposing a month-long lockdown on the whole of England. A decision could be announced within days. The rethink comes as government documents, seen by the BBC, suggest the UK is on course for significantly more deaths than during the first wave of the pandemic. One of these statistical models indicates more than 4,000 people could die each day unless tighter restrictions are brought in, although other projections are lower. Then, at 7.07am, the BBC's Laura Koonsberg tweeted the crucial detail that the Quad had been presented with a range of projections. But one even puts daily deaths over 4,000, she posted. As one confidant of the Prime Minister puts it, that was the key moment. Once the figure of 4,000 was in the public domain, Boris had no choice but to go ahead with the lockdown. We had moved beyond public health policy into political necessity. Thus began Boris Johnson's Halloween of horror, a media pile-on matched by fury on the Conservative backbenches that the government was being bounced into excessive restrictions, matched by the PM's own anger that he had been denied the chance to give this huge decision proper consideration. At 9.07am, Robert Peston tweeted a link to an ITV article claiming that the PM appears to have made a catastrophic misjudgment by failing to lock down England earlier. Too soon or too late, by this stage Johnson was visibly apoplectic and immediately launched a leak inquiry to find out who was the so-called chatty rat. Yes, that's right. So in the last few moments, we've been told that there is a leak inquiry now happening via the Cabinet Secretary um, to look into what happened after a meeting between the Chancellor, the Prime Minister, the Health Secretary uh, and Michael Gove, the Chancellor to the Duchy of Lancaster. So um, clearly there are some concerns about information that has come out of that meeting and the government uh, say that they are, well, they seem to be frustrated from what we understand that this has come out ahead of an announcement that could have happened next week. To make clear how angry the PM was, security specialists were tasked with checking the phone data of senior ministers and investigating more than 70 other suspects. But there was more rage than reason in this. Most leak inquiries draw a blank for the simple reason that most media stories are a jigsaw drawn up from multiple sources and a bit of deduction. As one cabinet ally of Boris Johnson told me, 
It was transference on a massive scale. Boris wanted to stamp his authority on the government precisely because it was one of those moments when, you know, you feel things are spinning out of control. A cabinet meeting was called and a snap press conference set for 4pm. As social media and WhatsApp groups caught fire, the story was quickly framed as an example of spectacular media mismanagement, and so it was. But as we shall see, it was much more than that. As the PM clenched his fists and swore freely, nobody was sweating more than Lee Kane, the PM's communications chief. Lee Kane had been with Boris Johnson since the Vote Leave campaign in 2016 and stuck beside him even when he was on the back benches after his resignation as Foreign Secretary. He will never be allowed to forget that as a Daily Mirror journalist, he wore a chicken suit and chased David Cameron during the 2010 election campaign. But he had come to be regarded with great respect and affection by the Prime Minister, who liked to refer to him as Premier Lee. Now, Lee Kane was in serious trouble, trying to bring order to a hurricane of media speculation. But his difficulties symbolised much more than poor press management at the heart of the Johnson government. First, he was a core member of the Tough Guy Brexit Gang, the team that Boris Johnson had brought with him into government to make Number 10, in effect, the new headquarters of Vote Leave. Michael Gove, Dominic Cummings and Lee Kane were all Brexit comrades and as veterans of the referendum operated as a gang. They loved to talk tough about Brussels, about leaving the EU without a trade deal, about showing brinkmanship and bottle. Cummings, in particular, liked to give his comrades blokish nicknames. Kane was Kano. Ben Gascoigne, the PM's political secretary, was Gaza. Robert Oxley, Leave's man at the Foreign Office, was Rockstar. And David Frost the government's chief Brexit negotiator, was, inevitably, frosty. All this was presented as harmless, laddish behaviour, but it signified much more than political loyalty. Having won a referendum and a general election, neither achievement to be sniffed at, the Brexit gang had pretty high opinion of themselves and were openly aggressive towards anybody they considered suspect or off-message. Unfortunately for the smooth running of government, this included 99% of Whitehall officials and the overwhelming majority of MPs. Dominic Cummings, a right-wing Trotskyite in a hoodie, regarded everything as a battle to be won, a struggle to be fought to the death. This meant that he and Lee Kane too were good at campaigning but baffled by the slower, arduous, meticulous pace of government. And unfortunately for the Leave gang, the one thing you need in a pandemic is quite a lot of government. As one pro-Brexit minister who had nonetheless been growing concerned by the Cummings culture puts it, look, it's fine to move fast and break things, and Dom's quite right about a lot of things, but after you break things, you have to build new stuff up too, and we just haven't done that with coronavirus. If the pandemic had exposed the problem of trying to govern by gang, there was also, second, a growing gender divide at the apex of government. In the past week, Carrie Simons, the PM's partner, has been widely accredited with Lee Kane's eventual decision to leave. But this presentation of Carrie Simons as a scheming Lady Macbeth misses the point as well as being lazily sexist. Like Allegra Stratton, the government's talented new chief spokesperson, Carrie Simons was unimpressed by all the performative machismo in Number 10 and by the needlessly aggressive approach of Dominic Cummings and Lee Kane. Allegra Stratton told friends that she'd not talked to Lee Kane for weeks because of his abrasive manner and his Trumpesque contempt for some sections of the press. With plenty of journalistic experience of her own in the past travelling the country, she believed she could make the government's communications more accessible at a time of great national stress and increase its daily reach to voters. 
Her special interest was in the levelling up agenda, which was why she'd gone to work for the Chancellor in the first place. Now transferred to number 10, Allegra Stratton made clear that things had to change and that she wouldn't be a speak-your-weight machine on behalf of the Vote Leave gang. But an important detail in view of what was to happen, that she wasn't seeking Lee Kane's head or that of Dominic Cummings. Lee Kane decided that he could not continue his director of communications in the context of any such demands and in any case was hoping that Boris Johnson would promote him to the role of Chief of Staff, an idea that had been discussed by the two men in the previous weeks. The role was still notionally held by Eddie Lister, Boris's former Deputy Mayor of London, who had made clear months before that he would like to step down and had already become a member of the House of Lords. The idea of promoting Lee Kane to this position was obviously ridiculous. If, to use the roles made famous by Aaron Sorkin's White House drama The West Wing, he wasn't up to being C.J. Craig, how could he possibly cope with the job of Leo McGarry? Where was the logic in that? Would he now suddenly be senior in the chain of command to Dominic Cummings, whose devoted lieutenant he'd been for years? Did the PM seriously think that Allegra Stratton would happily report to Lee Kane in this new capacity? The truth is that Ben Elliott, the chairman of the party, and others had for months been sounding out potential candidates for the job of Chief of Staff. And it's a measure of how dysfunctional Boris Johnson's government had become and the reputation it had acquired that they couldn't persuade anyone with talent to take a job that would make them one of the most powerful people in the country. It was ridiculous even to think of Lee Kane as the solution, and Carrie Simons told Boris Johnson so. As one of her friends put it to me, the reason Carrie was against Lee becoming Chief of Staff is because she's met him. Yet again we can see the seeds of big changes being sown in the crunch 24 hours of Johnson's Halloween nightmare. As Lee Kane and his allies flailed, Boris Johnson held a virtual cabinet meeting at 1.30pm at which ministers were presented with a fait accompli and an incomplete picture. As one of them put it to me, it was at best a courtesy notification of what would be announced later on that afternoon. There was no discussion of furlough being extended or much of the detail. There was a fair bit of irritation at the leak. It was mostly an embarrassment. You know, we were doing this because we were doing it and that was that. Comparing notes afterwards, some ministers pointed the finger at Michael Gove, Dominic Cummings and Lee Kane, believing they had systematically bounced the indecisive Prime Minister into a decision. For the record, the Gove camp emphatically denies this. Somebody leaked from that meeting. Was it you? No. Do you know who it was? No. By this stage, the mole hunt was already pointless. The word was out and the embarrassment of the government compounded further as every hour passed. At 1.40pm, Laura Koonsberg tweeted that the 4pm press conference would now be held at 5pm. At 3.34pm, ITV's Robert Peston tweeted a fairly complete readout of the measures the PM would be announcing at the press conference whenever it actually started. Meanwhile, Steve Baker, the fiercely pro-Brexit and anti-lockdown MP, had been summoned to number 10 with his so-called red team of scientists as a show of good faith towards sceptical backbenchers and experts. Baker was determined to take the wheels off the data. In a rare stroke of good fortune for the government, this act of intellectual demolition proved beyond Steve Baker's abilities and he strode from Downing Street to declare his satisfaction to the cameras. But today what I've had is the opportunity to take a team into Downing Street. Uh, there were three scientists, myself a data analyst. We've had an amazing opportunity to robustly scrutinise the arguments, the data, the forecasts of where we're going. 
And what I would say to people is the Prime Minister's got very, very difficult choices to make and I would encourage all members of the public and all members of Parliament to listen extremely carefully to what the Prime Minister says today and over the coming days. But what followed was a fiasco of government communication that encapsulated the sleepless mess that had preceded it and hinted ominously the days of serious political fallout that were to follow. Behind the scenes, Boris Johnson kept going missing in the Warren of Number 10 as aides tried desperately to get the final version of his speech and accompanying communiques signed off. The PM likes to write his own material, which is fine, except when you have half an hour to finish an all-important statement to the nation. There were serious worries that Patrick Vallance and Chris Whitty's slides were completely incomprehensible. And there was also the bathos of two competing events on television, England trouncing Italy at rugby to win the Six Nations title, a match that kicked off at 4.45pm, and then... Strictly Come Dancing's scheduled start time of 7.10pm. Could Boris Johnson's strictly new lockdown show be safely sandwiched between the two? Of such calculations is real politics made. The rolling news channels cut back and forth between the studio and the dispiriting sight of three podiums bearing the hands, face, space slogan in Downing Street. Would the press conference ever happen? At 6.30pm it was postponed again. Bad news for Strictly Come Dancing's 10 million viewers who now face the truly horrendous prospect of their own show being delayed or cancelled. At 6.47pm, finally, the press conference began. But precisely when a Churchillian moment of statesmanship and focused oratory was most required to give the nation a sense of quite how much was at stake, well, that wasn't quite what we got. Good evening and apologies for disturbing your Saturday evening with more news of COVID. And I can assure you I wouldn't do this unless it was absolutely necessary. But first I'm going to hand over to Chris and then to Patrick who will present the latest data. Patrick Valance and Chris Whitty proceeded to mount one of the worst slide presentations in the history of Western democracy. The image showing heat maps of how the virus was hitting different age groups deserves special mention as does the Excel spreadsheet listing the situation facing individual hospitals. The overall impression was a blur of meaninglessness. Patrick Valance showed the slide with the all-important 4,000 death projection, but curiously omitted to mention the figure. Over to the Prime Minister, who channelled his inner Margaret Thatcher to suggest a degree of certainty he was definitely not feeling. Because the virus is doubling faster than we can conceivably add capacity. And so now is the time to take action because there is no alternative. Indeed, a few minutes later, he was musing publicly about how torn he was. This is a, a constant struggle and a balance that uh, any government has to uh, make between uh, lives and, and livelihoods. And obviously, uh, lives must come first. But we have to be mindful the whole time of the scarring, the long-term economic impact of uh, the, the measures that we're obliged to, to introduce. And lest anyone was in any doubt, the scientists were very keen to remind everyone watching that it was Boris Johnson's call and they were just advisers. There's no doubt from the purely point of view of the spread of COVID, the earlier you go in, the better. And so that is definitely the case for the spread of the disease. But of course, you know, um, people have to take into account other things as well, and that's a matter for politicians. That in case you hadn't noticed, is the sound of a Prime Minister being thrown under a bus. Perhaps, if you can think back to 2016, a bus with a lie on the side about £350 million that would come the way of the NHS if we left the European Union. He who lives by the bus risks dying under it. 
The press conference ended with Boris Johnson still in place but visibly subdued, looking like a man deeply and justifiably demoralised, a politician conscious that the engine was out of fuel. He had survived the Halloween from hell, just, but the ghosts of All Hallows' Eve kept revisiting him. On Sunday morning, the key 4,000 deaths figure was publicly debunked in a Telegraph report. The Tory backbencher Steve Baker quickly changed his mind on second lockdown, with a core of at least 50 rebel Tories forming the new Covid recovery group to harry the government. More political capital had gone to waste. On bonfire night, the split within the quad between the Matt Hancock, Michael Gove axis supporting lockdown and the doubters was out in the open thanks to Rishi Sunak's Commons statement making very clear the extent of his opposition. And most important of all, Johnson, the hapless figure amidst the leaks chaotic press conference and muddled messaging had been forced to confront a reality that had been clear to others for months that the number 10 organisation needed root and branch change so that it was worthy to be called an organisation at all. In this respect, the search for the chatty rat was a proxy for a question to which the PM knew the answer all along. Whether or not he could find out who had given the media advance notice of the lockdown plan and he knew as a journalist that it was unlikely to be a single person making a single call he knew that the mole hunt would force him to deal with the bigger problem of poisonous briefing. And that problem could not be resolved as long as Lee Kane and Dominic Cummings were still in the building, his closest comrades from the Vote Leave glory days. His bungled attempt to make Kane chief of staff had the whiff of desperation, and Carrie Simons and Allegra Stratton told him so. Only a few steps separated the PM's mournful recognition that they were right to his summary dismissal of Cummings and Kane on Friday. The old order changeth, yielding place to what? Over the weekend, a great reset of the Johnson government was repeatedly promised, but its form and character remained very unclear. More remarkable was the tectonic force driving it, namely that less than a year after he had won a remarkable 80-seat majority, Johnson was routinely described by his own MPs as being on probation or even in the last chance saloon. Rarely are a Prime Minister's problems so sharply and vividly dramatised as they were for Boris Johnson this turbulent Halloween. A whole style of government had been put to the test and found wanting. In the words of one Cabinet Minister, he should have stuck it out. The case for another lockdown was far from settled. History will not judge this weekend kindly. On the case for a second lockdown, it may yet be that the PM did the right thing for the wrong reasons. We will not know the answer to that for weeks as hospitals across the land struggle with thousands of admissions a day and hope that the emergency measures have worked. But the verdict of history on these fateful hours at the end of October is indeed unlikely to be kind. For Boris Johnson, it was truly a Halloween horror, unleashing demons that will haunt him long into the political night. Thanks for listening today. If you've enjoyed this podcast, I think there's a really good chance that you'll enjoy all of the other journalism that we do at Tortoise. There are articles that you can read through our app and online. And because we're an open newsroom, there are a whole load of editorial meetings that you can join in on from wherever you are in the world. You can shape our journalism and the stories that we tell. So just get our app and you can get access to everything that we do. Just go to tortoisemedia.com 
for a 30-day free trial. Oh, and of course, just as importantly, if you like this podcast, then do share it or give us a review. Thanks and see you next week. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. We're supposed to learn from our own mistakes, but other people's errors can be instructive too. From efforts to control the weather that went disastrously awry, to the untimely death of the Segway boss, history is a treasure trove of mishaps and meltdowns that can teach us all. I'm Tim Harford, host of Cautionary Tales, the podcast that mines the greatest fiascos of the past for their most valuable lessons. Listen to Cautionary Tales wherever you get your podcasts.